when we were starting to put together this morning's service, um, I got through the, the passage that we were going to read this morning, and it was Jeremiah chapters 37 to 44. I'm not reading eight chapters this morning. <laughs> You'll be glad to hear. Uh, but we are going to start in Jeremiah chapter 37. If you've got one of the church Bibles, it's on page, it starts on page 799. It's on the bottom right-hand corner. Um, and we'll be picking some verses out from those eight chapters as we go along. If you do want one of the church Bibles, please just put your hand up. Robert's coming around with some, some Bibles. I think there were some at the back, Robert, as well. Thank you. So we're going to start at Jeremiah chapter 37, verses 1 to 3. Zedekiah, son of Josiah, was made king of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He reigned in the place of Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim. Neither he nor his attendants nor the people of the land paid any attention to the words the Lord had spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. Zedekiah, however, sent Jehuchal, son of Shemael, with the priest Zephaniah, son of Maesiah, to Jeremiah the prophet with this message. Please pray to the Lord our God for us. And we're going to skip on to verse 11. It's a little bit further down that same page. Verses 11 to 15. After the Babylonian army had withdrawn from Jerusalem because of uh, Pharaoh's army, Jeremiah started to leave the city to go to the territory of Benjamin to get his share of the property among the people there. But when he reached the Benjamin gate, the captain of the guard, whose name was Erijah, son of Shalemiah, the son of Hananiah, arrested him and said, You are deserting to the Babylonians. That's not true, Jeremiah said. I'm not deserting to the Babylonians. But Erijah would not listen to him. Instead, he arrested Jeremiah and brought him to the officials. They were angry with Jeremiah and had him beaten and imprisoned in the house of Jonathan the secretary, which they had made into a prison. So we're going to skip on now to chapter 39, verses 1 to 8. So chapter 39, verses 1 to 8. This is how Jerusalem was taken. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army and laid siege to it. And on the ninth day of the fourth month of Zedekiah's eleventh year, the city wall was broken down. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and took seats in the middle gate. Nergal Shadazir of Shamgar, Nebo Sarsakim, a chief officer, Nergal Shadazir, a high official, and all the other officials of the king of Babylon. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled. They left the city at night by way of the king's garden, through the gate between the two walls, and headed towards the Arabah. But the Babylonian army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. They captured him and took him to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah in the the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes 
and also killed all the nobles of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. The Babylonians set fire to the royal palace and the houses of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. So we're jumping on then to chapter 40, verses 1 to 6. The words of Jeremiah from the Lord, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, had released him at Ramah. He had found Jeremiah bound in chains among all the captives from Jerusalem and Judah who were being carried into exile to Babylon. When the commander of the guard found Jeremiah, he said to him, The Lord your God decreed this disaster for your place, and now the Lord has brought it about. He has done just as he said he would. All this happened because you people sinned against the Lord and did not obey him. But today I am freeing you from the chains on your wrists. Come with me to Babylon if you like, and I will look after you. But if you do not want to, then don't come. Look, the whole country lies before you. Go wherever you please. However, before Jeremiah turned to go, Nebuzaradan added, Go back to Gedaliah, son of Akiham, the son of Shephan, whom the king of Babylon had appointed over the towns of Judah, and live with him among the people and go anywhere else you please. Then the commander gave him provisions and a present and let him go. So Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, at Mizpah and stayed with him among the people who were left behind in the land. Again, we're going to skip on to chapter 41, verses 16 to 18. Then Johanan, son of Karea, and all the army officers who were with him, led away all the survivors from Mizpah among um, whom he had recovered from Ishmael, son of Nethayena, after he had assassinated Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the soldiers, women, children, and court officials he had brought from Gibeon. And they went on, stopping at Gerath Kimham, near Bethlehem, on their way to Egypt, to escape the Babylonians. They were afraid of them, because Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, had killed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had appointed as governor over the land. And the last bit we're going to read is chapter 43, verses 7 to 13. So they entered Egypt in disobedience to the Lord and went as far as Tahapanes. In Tahapanes, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. While the Jews were watching, take some large stones with you and bury them in clay in the brick pavement at the entrance to Pharaoh's palace in Tepanes. Then say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, Israel says. I will send for my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and I will set his throne over these stones I have buried here, and he will spread his royal canopy above them. He will come and attack Egypt, bringing death to those destined for death, captivity to those destined for captivity, and the sword to those destined for the sword. He will set fire to the temples of the gods of Egypt, and he will bury their temples and take their gods captive. 
As a shepherd wraps his garment around him, so he will wrap Egypt round himself and depart from there unscathed. And there, in the temple of the sun in Egypt, he will demolish the sacred pillars and will burn down the temples of the gods of Egypt. Wow. Okay, there's a lot in there. Um, But Phil's going to come up now. Phil, if you want to come up, I'll just pray for you if that's all right before you look to bring us a message from all of those names. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we just want to pray that as we listen to you and your words, that you would use Phil now, you would use his preparation, use his time of seeking you and your words to bring us your message this morning. Father, we pray that we are ready to hear it. We pray that our hearts and our minds are open and willing to receive the words you want us to hear from your precious words. Pray you use Phil as your mouthpiece to us this morning. Amen. 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 Thanks, Rui. Um, you really are going to need a Bible this morning and have it opening in front of you. So if you haven't got one, uh, a couple of the, the, the stewards will just come around and, and if you want to just put your hand up and wave it vigorously, that's brilliant. Um, thank you. And, and uh, Brilliant. Thank you. Just one at the back there as well. Lovely. So the chapters we're looking at this morning share the details of what happened in the last days of Judah. Chapters 37 and 38 are about the persecutions that Jeremiah endured as God's word was continually rejected. Chapter 39 tells us about the end of Zedekiah and Jerusalem. And chapters 40 to 44 tell us the story of what happened after Jerusalem fell. And what we're going to do this morning is look at 37 and 38, then the end, 40 to 44, because there are lots of similarities between those two sections, and we'll finish on chapter 39. Work with me. Just just follow it. There's a lot to cover, but let me just start by saying the reason why we need to listen to these chapters is because our culture is about individualism. It's a culture that says, follow your instincts. Be an individual. Express yourself. Listen to your gut. But God says, listen to him. Trust his word. And these chapters say, to listen to God... Uh, that these chapters encourage us to listen to God. Why? Because the consequences really matter. And that's the thrust of these chapters. Listen to God because the consequences really matter. So our first point this morning is simply this. Fight the instinct to reject God's word. Fight the, the instinct to reject God's word. Chapter 37, verse 1, tells us that Zedekiah had become king instead of his brother. He ruled for 11 years as a kind of puppet king on behalf, controlled by Nebuchadnezzar. And the events of the next two chapters happen in the last 18 months of Zedekiah's reign. Chapters 37 and 38 also tell us how Jeremiah was treated in these days. So early on in chapter 37, as we read, Jeremiah is given a word from the Lord and, he had, and it's advice to Zedekiah to surrender to the Babylon, Babylonians 
before they finally broke into the besieged city of Jerusalem. But in doing this, some officials accused Jeremiah of working for the Babylonians, and they have him imprisoned. But interestingly, while Jeremiah is in prison, King Zedekiah seeks him out. Look at verse 16 with me. Jeremiah was put in a vaulted cell in a dungeon where he remained a long time. Then King Zedekiah sent for him and had him brought to the palace where he asked him privately, is there any word from the Lord? It's interestingly, it's interesting to see how rudderless Zedekiah is. He's powerless to stop Jeremiah's imprisonment. And yet he's desperate for directions, so he calls Jeremiah back out of prison. And even though he's jailed for it, Jeremiah doesn't change his message either. Yes, Jeremiah uh, replies to, to the question, is there any word from the Lord? You will be delivered into the hands of the king of Babylon. Jeremiah is then released from prison and he's given some protection by Zedekiah. But chapter 38 goes on to tell a very similar story. Jeremiah preaches the same message. Some powerful officials think he's on the side of the Babylonians and they have him thrown into a old well. It's quite a dramatic chapter because actually at the bottom of the well there's a shed load of mud and Jeremiah begins to sink into the mud. It's almost the death knell for the word of the Lord. Zedekiah seems powerless to, to, to influence any effect on, on, um, on Jeremiah. But then a faithful Ethiopian called Ebed-Melech hears what's happened to Jeremiah and he gets permission to take 30 men and rescue him. He throws down a shed load of rags into, Jeremiah, in, into the well to Jeremiah and Jeremiah puts them under his armpits and ties a rope around himself and these 30 men pull him out of the mud. And again, at the end of chapter 38, Jeremiah brings the word of the Lord. What is he going to say? Don't panic, Zedekiah. It's going to be all right. Everything will work out in the end. No. Verse 17 of chapter 38. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, this is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel says. If you surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, your life will be spared and this city will not be burnt down. You and your family will live. But if you will not surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, this city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians and they will burn it down. You yourself will not escape from them. It's a generous message. If the Israelites surrender to the Babylonians, they're going to thrive. If they don't, they will die. But Zedekiah doesn't listen. Instead, he trusts what he knows about the Babylonians. They were a bloodthirsty, cruel nation. That's what their reputation was all about. And therefore, he didn't trust what God said, so he chose to fight. Now, these two chapters tell a very similar story. They're here because of their similarity. It's as though whoever finally sort of ordered all the chapters of Jeremiah decided that these two go together because they make the same point. The people of Judah had stopped listening to God. They were rudderless in the chaos of their world. And so they went with what they could see rather than what they should have been listening to. Do you see it? 
Zedekiah shows us that when reality starts to bite, God's word is something that people don't naturally trust. Do you see that? That's what plagues Zedekiah throughout his, his, uh, his time as king. It's what plagued the people of Israel throughout Jeremiah's ministry. Imagine 40 years saying the same thing. Turn back to God, turn back to God, turn back to God. And it, for all those 40 years seeing a people say, no, I reject your word. I'm going to do what I want to do. 40 years of it. And even when the comfort of the world is challenged by disaster, the Babylonians from the north, Zedekiah still doesn't listen. But Jeremiah preached God's word. And he invited the people to repent of their sins, to once more be in relationship with the living God, to listen to his voice and trust his care, even when things looked difficult. And Zedekiah couldn't do that. He trusted what he could see. Actually, chapter 37, verse 5, tells us the story how the other superpower in the world, so you had the superpower of the Babylonians in the north and the superpower of the Egyptians in the south. So they sent an army to head off the, the, the Babylonians. The Egyptians sent an army from the south to head off the Babylonians. And, and the siege lifted for a while while Nebuchadnezzar dealt with the, with, with the Egyptians So what Zedekiah saw was rescue from the Egyptians, and he trusted that more than God's word. And you can see the tension in him. And it's quite funny when you look at him, because on the one hand, he doesn't listen to God because he only sees the circumstances in front of him. But on the other hand, time and time again, he, he calls in Jeremiah and says, tell me what God says, please. I really want to hear. No, no, you tell me, please. And yet he doesn't listen. It is very like the person who wants comfort from the church, but not the challenge. And that's basically what the pressure on the church today is all about. Hey, church, says our secular world. Be nice and comfortable for us, please. Don't be challenging you. Don't be challenging us, and we'll like you. But don't mention hell. Don't mention judgment. Don't mention how God sees sexuality, because we don't like that. You're there to comfort us. You're not there to challenge us, so sort it out. That's how our culture treats the church. And Zedekiah is caught up in that attitude. Come on, Jeremiah, say something nice to me. Please. And Jeremiah doesn't budge. And these chapters challenge believers today with Jeremiah's example. He knows the reaction he's going to get from his prophecy, doesn't he? Forty years of it. 
He knows that even when the king seeks him out in secret to know the will of the Lord, it won't make any difference and would probably cause more persecution. But he carries on. He preaches. And his conviction is simply this. God's word fills me and it must be proclaimed. In spite of what he sees around him. And here's the contrast between them. Jeremiah doesn't trust what he sees. Instead, he trusts the word of the Lord. And yes, it gets him into more trouble than respect. But here's the truth that he clings to. The nature of God's word is that it will work on the heart of those who hear it, whether they like it or not, or whether he sees it or not. Do you see that challenge? And therefore, when trouble and persecution comes, when he's thrown into a well and the mud is sucking him down, he is not shaken. He doesn't scream up to his captors, guys, I'll change the message, I promise. Just help me. The mud gets deeper and deeper and deeper and he is not shaken. Zedekiah, on the other hand, is like a a cork Bobbing around in a boiling ocean. He has, no, he has no rudder. He has no power. He has no anchor. He just goes along with what he sees. And the contrast must be a comfort to us. It must be a comfort and a challenge to us. A challenge to, to proclaim the word of God. A challenge to trust the word of God. A challenge not to trust in what we see. Our second point this morning is very similar to this first point. And it simply says this, fight the instinct to trust in safety and comfort more than God's word. Fight the instinct to trust in safety and comfort more than God's word. So chapter 39 deals with the final capture of Jerusalem. It tells us about Zedekiah's imprisonment and the final exile of the people of Judah. We're going to look at that in a little bit, but here we're going to skip over to chapters 40 to 44, where we see what happened after Jerusalem had been captured. So King Zedekiah is put in prison. Nebuchadnezzar then places a governor called Gedaliah in his place. So Gedaliah rules Israel. And at first, it seems under Gedaliah's leadership, the people of Israel who were left in the land would thrive. That's what chapter 40 and verse 12 tells us. So look at that verse with us. They all came back to the land of Judah, to Gedaliah at Mizpah, from all the countries where they had been scattered, and they harvested an abundance of wine and summer fruit. That last sentence was a hint of God blessing the people according to his covenant promises. God's not being subtle here. He's promised that his people would be well cared for under the Babylonian rule, and it was coming true. It seemed that finally, peace was coming to the people. But then seven months into this new beginning, Gedaliah is killed. Chapter 41, verse 2 tells us that. Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, and the ten men who were with him got up and struck down Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, with the sword, killing the one whom the king of Babylon had appointed as governor over the land. 
It was another new beginning destroyed by willful rebellion against God's word. Ishmael had royal links to the line of David, and he thought that he could revolt against the Babylonian rule. But later in the chapter, Ishmael's revolt fails when some other Israelites overthrew him. But then that left the new bunch of Israelites fearful of a reprisal from the Babylonians, as described in chapter 41, verse 17. Look at that with me. They went on stopping at Gerath Kiham near Bethlehem on their way to Egypt to escape the Babylonians. They were afraid of them because Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, had killed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had appointed as governor over the land. What should they do? It seemed that they couldn't stay for fear that the Babylonians would come down on them like a ton of bricks. So they decided to go back to an old comfort zone, the country of Egypt. But before they went... They then decided to dig up Jeremiah and have a chat to see what God thought they should do. And this time they promised to listen. Look at chapter 42, verse 5. Then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act according to all the word with which the Lord your God sends you to us. Whether it is good or bad, we will obey the voice of the Lord." And then we're told in verse 7 that after 10 days, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And he gives them this message. Verse 10. If you will remain in the land, then I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up. For I relent of the disaster that I did to you. Do not fear the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. It's beautiful, isn't it? God promises once again, guys, stick with it. Stay in the land. The Babylonians are not going to cause you harm. But the warning is there also. If you go to Egypt... Well, the Babylonians are just going to reach out there and destroy Egypt too. So stay in the land. Don't go to Egypt. Why is God so against them seeking refuge in Egypt? Well, isn't it interesting? Superpower Egypt to the south, superpower Babylon to the north. Who are you going to choose? These guys we're in trouble with. These guys... Neutral, let's go there. It's a safe and comfortable option. It's a no-brainer. But it's also a historical comfort zone that God warns God's people about. Egypt had always been seen seen by the Jews as a secular backstop option. If things go bad in the land of Israel, we'll go to Egypt. It seems that whenever Israel was in trouble, whenever they doubted God, someone would turn their mind wistfully back to Egypt. And they'd wonder whether it it wouldn't be a better place than God's promised land. Egypt was the place out of which God had rescued them from slavery with power and might. And that's why for God... 
to seek refuge in Egypt was a slap in the face. God had brought his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, into his promised land, under his covenant, under his promises and blessing. So to go back to Egypt is to say to God, I see your promises, but I don't trust them. I see your blessings, but they're not good enough. I see what you say, but I'm not going to listen. I'm going back to Egypt. Chapter 43, verse 4. So Jehonan, son of Kerea, who was the leader, and all the, armies and officers, all the army officers and all the people disobeyed the Lord's command to stay in the land of Judah. Verse 7. So they entered Egypt in disobedience to the Lord and went as far as Tapanes. It reminds me of when I was a kid. I was staying at my uncle's farm and one night a fire erupted in the barns. It was lambing season. The barns were full of sheep and my uncle had separated the pens with walls of dry straw bales. So effectively it was a fire trap in the making. Early on in the fire, my uncle had managed to run into the barn and open all the pens. But the sheep were so scared that they stayed in the safest place they knew, which was the pens in those barns. The rescue came when Ben, the sheepdog, ran into the pens, which were by then on fire, and herded the sheep out. And for the rest of the night, Ben had to keep them away from seeking shelter in those burning barns. And like those sheep, the ragged bunch of Israelites that remained in the land fled to the safest place they could think of, Egypt. But to go there put themselves in total danger. They were slapping God in the face. They were provoking his anger by rejecting his promises. In the end, in the end, they faced God's judgment. There is no happy ending. And chapters 40 to 44 are sobering chapters. It seems, and it's just such, such the history of the, of the Jews in the Old Testament. Just when there's a glimmer of hope for the Israelites who remained in the land that hope was snuffed out by rebellious Ishmael. And these chapters are here to challenge the reader to examine ourselves. How similar are we? I don't know whether we see ourselves as those Israelites, that we hear God's word, but we trust our instincts or find our security in our safe place. It could be our job, our status, our mask of self-confidence, our family, our friends, our social media likes, peer pressure. But let's, hear, let's listen to the warning of these chapters. Trusting in our comfort place is slapping God in the face. Let's heed that warning. 
And it brings us to the last point of this passage, that we're to shudder at the cost of sin. We're to shudder at the cost of sin. Chapter 39 is the heart of the passage. Uh, Chapters 38 and 37 challenge the reader not to reject God's word based on what you see in your circumstances. Chapter 40 to 44 challenge the reader not to reject God's word in favor of what we find our comfort and security in. But chapter 39 is one of the saddest chapters in the Bible, and it comes right in the middle of this sad section of the book. Chapter 39 marks the death of the old covenant and the abandonment of Israel to the Babylonian armies. It tells how God's people are enslaved by Babylon and are no longer God's people. God's people reject God, so God removes his care over them. Those covenant blessings, they are removed. And that's why God is not mentioned in this chapter. If you read it through uh, by yourself, you'll, you'll notice that. God is not mentioned. And that tells us that Israel has been abandoned by God. Israel was being judged for the way they had rejected God. But the more you look at this chapter, you begin to see parallels to another of the saddest chapters in the Bible. A chapter where God's people reject God. Where God's people are determined to silence the word of God. Another chapter where we see God's people enslaved to sin. Another chapter where we see abandonment. Another chapter where we see God's wrath poured out. Another chapter where God's covenant care is totally removed from the one he loves. Another chapter where God's covenant judgment falls in all its fullness. And it draws our attention to where we see the abandonment of the one who called himself true Israel, the one who suffered to pay the price of the sin of the world. So this chapter 39 foreshadows Jesus' suffering. Just as Israel suffered horribly for their rebellion against God, so Jesus suffered horribly for the rebellion of the world, and how much more? And just as Israel was abandoned to the horrors of God's judgment through the Babylonians, how much more was Jesus abandoned to the horror of the wrath of God? So whereas Israel was punished because they'd broken the covenant, Jesus was punished because he was the only one who had kept the covenant. And whereas Israel's punishment was deserved, Jesus' abandonment was undeserved. And whereas Israel unwillingly took their abandonment, Jesus laid down his life in love and care for his people. And whereas Israel's abandonment marked the end of a defeated people without hope in their own strength, Jesus' abandonment marked the beginning of the greatest victory over sin and death and marked the beginning of a new covenant people whose only purpose and joy is in the hope that is found in his resurrection body. Do you see how this chapter is about 
Do you see how this chapter about Israel's suffering is placed at the heart of Israel's constant not listening to God and constant rebellion? Why? Because God wants us to see the awful cost of rebellion. That rebellion will not go unpunished. There will be a judgment day and we will not escape that day. But it's also there to show us that the only hope that men and women throughout the world have of knowing God is if true Israel suffers in our place. And if we're not a Christian here this morning, then these chapters warn us of pushing God's patience too far. They warn us that judgment is coming. If we listen to God's word and accept the invitation to trust in his son, Jesus Christ, to take the penalty for our sin that we deserve, then God will forgive us. And there are two, just like, just like Zedekiah had those two options, the people of Israel, had, after Zedekiah, had those two options, stay in the land under the Babylonians and you will not suffer, reject God's word and you will be judged. The same options are there before us. If we live with Jesus, trusting in his, in, in his payment for our penalty of sin on the cross, we will be forgiven. If we hear that message and reject that message, we will be judged. That's the offer on the table then. That's the offer of the ta- on the table now. And the question is, are we going to listen? Are we going to listen? I can't make you listen. I really cannot. But look at it and just see it as a no-brainer. An eternity of forgiveness and relationship with God or an eternity of judgment and hell and abandonment from God. And I know this is not the nicest thing for a minister to be saying. I get that. But I'm not saying it. This is God's word and God's challenge for us this morning. Will you listen? Will you listen? Do you know it's not difficult to accept this offer? I, I, I totally, totally love Jesus because he doesn't give us advice, he gives us good news. He says, Look, the work to take away your sin is done. I have borne the price on the cross. I have carried the wrath of God myself. Will you accept the offer of my forgiveness? There, it's there. Take it. Take it. It's a free offer. It's a gracious offer. The work is done. Will you take the offer and be forgiven? Because I've done the work. You need not do anything more than trust in the person of Jesus Christ to take away your sin. And all you need do is trust. It's a heart thing. All you need to do is see him on that tree and say, in your heart, Lord Jesus Christ, son of the living God, I believe you. 
I believe what you have done there. Will you take my sin, my rebellion towards God, the way that I have treated God, the awful things that I have done against God, and bear the punishment for them on my behalf so that I might be free from them? Will you take that? Will you listen to God's word? Do you know, for, as we think on this chapter, I, I just hope that the parallels drive those of us who are Christians to two positions. That, that, that firstly, we don't take the grace God has shown us too lightly. Do you know, as we, as we look at the, the cost of the penalty of, of, of sin in this chapter and the severity of God's judgment, well, then it draws our attention to Christ on the cross, doesn't it? And in, 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 in drawing our attention to Christ on the cross, it challenges us to, to consider the severity and consider the cost of our pet sins, the sins that we keep going back to and challenges us if we think they don't matter to God. It challenges us to think twice about trusting in what we see. You know, young people, the, the, the temptation is, uh, is, is to go out with someone you like rather than someone who is godly. Trust what you see rather than what Christ says is wise. We trust in our, uh, Christians often trust in our comfort and safety. That's often why we don't give generously. Why? Because we see our financial security and our money. And so we say, oh, I can't possibly give a tenth of what I earn to God from the beginning of the month. How can I survive off that? We trust in our comfort and safety of our salaries, of our earnings, and, and we don't give generously to God. Doesn't the cross challenge that? If Christ has paid the penalty... Oh, how beautiful it is to trust in him. So the cross challenges us to think twice about trusting what we see and trusting our comfort and safety. But, you know, it challenges us to live, oh, with such gratefulness and thanks, with such joy in our hearts. The price, the awful price has been paid. These terrible chapters have reminded us of that price and we know that Christ has borne it all. And therefore, we, we sing to him, we praise him, we live in grateful thanks to him. He who has established a new covenant, who has written his law on our hearts, who has given us a new heart and a new relationship with God through his death. Isn't that beautiful? So let's consider these things as we consider the, the cost of sin, let's seek that new relationship with God that comes at the price of Jesus' death on the cross. Let's think twice about trusting what we see. Let's think twice about seeking our com- more, more, more comfort and, uh, security and comfort and safety. And let's go to the cross. Let's go to the cross. Let's pray together. Father God, these have been
a whistle-stop tour through some of the darkest chapters in the Bible. But Lord, as we've seen the, the broad brushstrokes of these chapters, I pray that we would be challenged. And these two ways to live would be so obvious to us. May we listen to your word and trust that your son Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. Lord Jesus Christ, may we live in grateful thanks to your work and seek to honor you in all that we do. Trusting in you, not in what we see. Trusting in you and not safety and comfort. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.